This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello. Dr. Beal, it's Jonathan Master calling. Good to uh, chat with you when uh, everything's going well with you. It is, it is. And with you? Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to win a free book by this week's guest, Greg Beal. Our guest today is Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Westminster Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He's written many volumes and articles, including A New Testament Biblical Theology, published by Baker, and he was co-editor of the Commentary on the New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. And that's the topic for our conversation today, a topic on which there are many different opinions and conclusions, but we're delighted to have one of the leading thinkers on this topic, Dr. Greg Beal. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So I want to begin by asking if you could outline some of the issues involved here. I can envision someone saying, of course the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and what's the problem, or what are the issues? So could you outline briefly what some of the questions are that Christians have asked regarding the way in which the New Testament uses or quotes from the Old Testament? Um, well, one of the first things that arise is when one is reading a quotation, for example, from the uh, Old Testament and the New, and I say for example because there are also allusions, but we'll just deal with quotations now. When one's reading a quotation, sometimes you're reading along and uh, the quotation sticks out like a sore thumb. It does not seem to fit into the thematic flow contextually of uh, the chapter in the New Testament being read. And so students of Scripture and people reading their Bibles devotionally sometimes just throw up their hands and say, well, I'll just move on. Now, some biblical scholars, uh, and here we can speak also of those who are evangelicals, they will study these things, and some conclude that, take Paul, for example, that Um, in Ephesians 4, verse 8, where he quotes Psalm 68, where it says, um, when he ascended on high, he led captive his captives, and he gave gifts to men. The psalm quotation says that he received gifts from men. It sounds directly contradictory. And so some have thought here that... uh, Paul has just made a mistake in memory, or that the um, some Jewish commentaries understood the psalm to be uh, perhaps referring to um, the giving of gifts or other things. The idea being that the New Testament writers, including Paul, were taking texts from the Old Testament but preaching uh, a right doctrine, but from the wrong texts. And so the idea is that, um, that uh, and many would say that's going on, and, and they would, they're evangelists, and they say, but this is inspired. It's a strange view of inspiration, perhaps, but they would say, that, you know, it's just like a preacher in a foreign country, an American who goes to a foreign country, and is, is, is preaching the gospel, is not well-trained, and... Um, is, is, is preaching from a text and a sermon, and he's totally got the idea wrong, but 
but it's truly about the gospel, and people get converted through it. And so mm-hmm. um, I've actually heard that explanation from a particular scholar who's worked with Old and the New. So uh, the question is, do the New Testament writers actually use texts that are not consistently developing the idea of the Old Testament, in fact, even developing it in a contradictory way? Or uh, are they using those texts in some way that is actually in line, in some way, to some degree, with the meaning of the original Old Testament um, uh, writer. So the, the, that's one of the biggest issues of Old and the New. A second huge issue is the issue of typology, and that is you find texts quoted from the Old Testament and the New, like John 19, where it says when they decided not to break Jesus' bones on the cross, that this was a fulfillment of Exodus 12, which is speaking of the Passover lamb, it says not a bone of him was to be broken. Uh, it gives the stipulations for ongoing generations uh, of the Passover lamb feast. And it says that this is fulfilled in Jesus. It doesn't look like that text is talking about Jesus. It looks like it's talking about a, you know, the ongoing uh, requirements of how to celebrate the Passover lamb feast. And yet, John says it's fulfilled in Jesus. And um, so, again, some would say, well, that's just a wrong use of the text, as, as we were talking about a while ago. Others, however, would say that this is an example of typology, whereby an Old Testament uh, situation, historical situation, foreshadows on a grander scale something in the New Testament. And... Um, in this case, it, uh, the lamb foreshadows the greater lamb, uh, Jesus Christ. And it's in that sense that Jesus fulfills that text. One has to actually then decide, well, um, was there anything about a Messiah in Exodus chapter 12? And I'm not going to go into detail about that, but I think if you look at the wider cognitive peripheral vision of Moses, that uh, there is a link with a messianic notion. I've explained this in a excursus at the end of my, uh, a book on Old and the New called Hidden But Now Revealed, just published with University Press. I have an excursus called The Cognitive Peripheral Vision of Biblical Writers, and in there I, I, I do talk about this Exodus 12 example. So those would be two issues, typology and did Jesus and the apostles uh, preach the right doctrine from the wrong text? And we have to remember, we're not just talking about Paul and the apostles. We're including Jesus in this. Right. So it becomes, makes it a little bit more of a sober issue. Right. Even more right. sober. Right. Because, uh, and then the question really is, are they playing fast and loose with the right. Old Testament itself? So I wonder if you could explain in kind of maybe slightly less technical language how it is that you you develop this wider peripheral view of what's going on in these texts that appear to use typology. Um, You mentioned the Passover text. What should I be doing as a reader of the Old Testament to kind of begin to understand what might be going on? Because I take it that the force of your comments up to this point are saying, no, the New Testament writers are not just picking texts because the quotes sound good and and, and people seem to respond to them. They're actually Mm -hmm. understanding the Old Testament. And so so Mm -hmm. how how is it that they're understanding the Old Testament in a way that maybe on a first superficial reading we're prone to miss? 
Well, um, for example, uh, when I use that phrase, the uh, cognitive peripheral vision of biblical authors, it's just another way, actually, of talking about the wider context of the Old Testament citation. So, for example, you might have a, a writer quoting, a New Testament writer quoting an Old Testament text, it looks like he's given it, you know, maybe a strange interpretation from what it appears to be in its immediate context. But if you widen the contextual vision, widen it maybe to a chapter later or a chapter earlier or two chapters earlier or two chapters later, you find that that idea actually is developed in the way that the New Testament writer is um spinning it, if you will, so that I'm contending that you've got to widen your vision. And that when the New Testament writer was looking at that Old Testament text, he had a wider vision of things, just like when you're driving down the street, and but you can see in your peripheral vision things to the side. And um, that may not be the focus, but they're there, and you're aware of them. In fact, if you don't have good peripheral vision... If it gets really bad, then you can't drive anymore. So I think that's what's going on. For example, in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, you remember Matthew 2 and verse 15 quotes, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And um, while this is um, difficult on a number of fronts, in fact, uh, Matthew says this is a fulfillment of that, but Hosea is referring to the past exodus, calling Israel is a son out of Egypt. So how do you turn a historical reference into a prophecy? And, um, well, I think that what um, Matthew is doing is actually explained in the wider context of Hosea. And the, In fact, Hosea already has a typological view of the first exodus, which he has referred to in um, Hosea 11.1. 1. If you look throughout the book, you find that there are other references to a first exodus, as in chapter 1, for example, um, and and 2. But there are also references to an end-time exodus, using the same language. And there's so many of these first exodus, eschatological exodus references, that really you have to ask, why did Hosea model the end-time restoration and salvation of God's people on the first restoration out of Egypt? And um, why, why did he use that language? It's because I think he saw them as related, and not just analogically, but that one foreshadowed another. There's so many uses of the first and, and, and last Exodus references. But... Indeed, if you just widen the peripheral vision within chapter 11 itself, the uh, main point of chapter 11 ends in verse 11, where it says, it it starts speaking about the end-time restoration of Israel. And it says, uh, they'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. I'll settle them in houses, etc. And so... um, 
basically in, in early in chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1 starts out with the first exodus, then it goes into Israel's history of sin and disobedience, and then it narrates about how God's going to judge them on up through verse 8, and then verses 9 through 11 is about, nevertheless, after the judgment, there's going to be restoration, and they're going to come out from Egypt. So already, we could solve the problem in Matthew, partly just by saying that Matthew was aware of the wider context of chapter 11, and the main point of chapter 11, that is, the first exodus mentioned in verse 1, was inextricably, inextricably linked in leading to a later exodus. So you can you can already see um, the connection between the two, and then that that is uh, confirmed elsewhere in the book, where you have so many references to a first and a second exodus. I think Matthew is just buying in to the typological view of Hosea, so right. that um, the first exodus for Hosea foreshadowed a latter day exodus, and then you have to ask, well, how do you get Jesus in there? Because the Son in Hosea eleven one is corporate Israel. Well. If you widen the vision a little more to the eschatological exodus in Hosea uh, chapter 1, it refers again to the end-time exodus, and it says there that as they're coming out, it says that they will appoint for themselves one head, one rosh in, um, in, in Hebrew. And um, it says they'll go up from the land, and that is not the land of Israel they're going up from. They're, they're coming out of Egypt again. Right, right. And so, but that's future. And here they're led by a, uh, a leader, an eschatological leader, that Hosea 3.5 identifies directly with the Messiah, uh, another restoration text. And uh, intriguingly, in chapter 1, where it, where it talks about this restoration and this Rosh leading them, um, it says that they are the sons of the living God. Well, Matthew 16 identifies Jesus as the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. Son, the language of son, together with living God, occurs in only one other place outside of Matthew 16, and it's Hosea 11.1. 1. But it's corporate here in Hosea 11.1. 1. But you can see it's identified with the Rosh. He's among the sons of the living God. And so uh, you have the idea of the one and the many. The Messiah represents the many. He is the son of the living God, and so those identified with him are sons of the living God. And so uh, you can see what Matthew himself um, later will take this from the plural, sons of the living God, make it singular uh, to refer to the Hosean Messiah. Um, so you, that's how you really get a, um, the corporate nation being turned into an individual, because this is also part of Hosea's own biblical theology, that uh, the one represents the many. They're corporately identified, just as unbelievers are little Adamites because they're an Adam, or if we're believers, we're in Christ, and we're mm-hmm. called Christianity and uh, Christians. So um, anyway, that's... Um, uh, how I would explain a particular yep. text like that, I've actually published that in the journal for this uh, um, Evangelical Theological Society, if anybody wanted to go to that and look at the details. No, I, I'm glad you went step-by-step step through that, because it sounds to me like some of the big points you're making are these. Number one, the stakes are, are pretty high. This is a significant issue, because if we were to say that Jesus and the apostles played fast and loose with the Old Testament, that, that opens up a whole... 
uh, number of other real problems, but also that there are these these issues of typology and then understanding the wider context. So it sounds like each of these quotations has acted for you and, and for us it should as well as a kind of invitation to go back and read more closely the entirety of yep. the context in which it's found. And that, yep. it yep. turns yep. out, is exactly yep. what the New Testament writers were doing. So that step-by-step that, that -step example was exceptionally helpful. Now, now I have one final question because of... Well, let uh, me just, let me oh, just yeah. comment very briefly. Sure, and that sure. Is that, 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 that one of my, may I say, dialogue partners in this debate um, has actually, uh, with tongue-in-cheek, said, well, for Greg Beale, um, or scholars like Beale, um, if you, uh, they, they would contend, if you just dig hard enough in the Old Testament, you'll find the answer. And for that, for, for that scholar, that was just humorous. Okay, that, um, that was actually intended to be an insult. Uh, uh, yes, and, and my answer to that is, you're exactly right. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. What he is an insult, I think, is right, and I think that, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to answer every problem. Of course, there's still going to be problems, sure. just as there is in the general view of the inspiration of Scripture. If I had to solve every problem in Scripture to hold to inerrancy, then I wouldn't hold it. Right, right. But so. but it sounds like what you're, what you're demonstrating, what your career of writing is demonstrating, is that, in fact, actually, if we do dig hard enough, the, some of these problems are understandable and and, and it, it what a joyous pursuit to know that you can go back into your Old Testament and really get it get at the key teaching so uh, that's exceptionally helpful um, now so my final question is is just simply this feel free to mention here your own writings in fact I would if I were in your shoes what could you could you recommend one or two sources that would be non-technical that might sort of take someone down the path and review some of the principles that you've outlined in this interview well I do have a book uh, it has technical parts in it but um, you know when you come across the technical parts so you can do what my wife does and just say well that's a bunch of blah 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 I'm gonna skip it <laughs> And so, um, but but I have something called Handbook on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And there I lay out a method for studying the use of the Old Testament and some of the sources to use for that. Uh, I give a case study of an Old Testament quotation that goes through all the steps of my approach at the very end of the book in a final chapter. So that might be um, maybe the best, even even though there are some parts of that that um, a general reader would not be interested in. For example, I have a chapter on Jewish primary sources to check to see how they use the Old Testament. Well, you know, the more interested reader can, can read through that, but, but others may decide not to. Right. So repeat all the details, not of the not of what to skip, but give us the title again just so that those who are the, clicking uh, on yeah, Amazon the, the, now can do it. Yeah. Now, this is Handbook on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, right. published by, uh, published by um, Baker. Yes. Uh, I have an earlier book that, that, that is, I mean, there's some articles I think that would be helpful. Some are more scholarly, some not, but it's called The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text, yes. question mark. Um, now, there were some editions that didn't have the question mark, so some people think I'm actually arguing that uh, they did <laughs> preach the right doctrine from the wrong text, right. but there should be a question mark. So read beyond and the that, title. That, that's right. In that book, uh, actually what I do is I have scholars who argue 
in line with the view that I hold and scholars that argue against that mm-hmm. view. And so it's a kind of a, you know, re- read both sides of the issue book. That, that Those are very helpful recommendations. I would commend personally both of those books as well. And and thank you for this discussion. I feel like we could go on and on, but in the interest of time, we'll, we'll cut it short. Dr. Beal, thank you for being with us today. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth seeks to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. This week at our website, we have a drawing to win free copies of Greg Beale's book, Handbook of the New Testament, Use of the Old Testament. Head over to placefortruth.org to enter. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.